Our scripture reading is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope, which through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look on these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we're in a season of which we periodically enter to, of looking at uh, what we are here to do as a church community in the city. We're looking at our vision, our calling, and one of the aspects of that vision has always been the gospel changes everything. And in this text, we've got one of the main, most fundamental ways in which the gospel changes the individual life uh, and the individual heart. It's in this significant and actually well-known phrase, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Born again, that's one of the key ways in which the gospel changes us. Now, we're immediately at a disadvantage here because the term born again in our culture has a connotation, has a meaning that is pretty far removed from what the Bible means by it. And so we're going to have to make a particular effort to get down into the text and to say, what was the, what's the ancient meaning? What's the prevailing meaning? What's the real meaning 
of being born again. Because if you want to understand how the gospel affects everything, you have to understand this. And let's note, I'd like to show you uh, at least five things, actually. Uh, those of you who think I can only give a three-point message, I will prove your doubts to be baseless today. And uh, there's five ways in which, well, there's five things we learn about the new birth. It's necessity, okay? It's necessity, it's source, it's nature, it's growth, and then how it begins and proceeds. First of all, it's necessity. It's one little word, but it's very, very significant, and you may not consider the uh, implications of it unless uh, we do this together. It says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, who's Peter talking to? He's writing a, you know, a church, he's writing a set of Christians, and he doesn't say, uh, in his great mercy, he has given some of us a particular experience. He says, us, we, that means anybody who's a Christian, he's assuming, has experienced the new birth. John, in his letters, Paul, in his letters, Peter here, James, in first chapter of his letter, and Jesus himself, you know, when talking to Nicodemus in the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 3, all of these writers, which is pretty much the whole sweep of all the writers of the, uh, and uh, the sources of the New Testament, all say, if you're a Christian at all, you must be born again. And the reason I say that is, I've already referred to it, the connotation of a born-again Christian today means a particular kind of Christian, a particularly conservative kind of Christian, or a particularly emotional kind of Christian, or somebody who's had a dramatic conversion experience. But this shows, everywhere in the New Testament it shows, that this is not something for certain types of people, for certain temperaments, for certain stripes of Christians. Uh, as Jesus says, if you want to be a Christian at all, you must be born again. The person who pushes that home most strongly is Jesus himself, because in chapter 3 of John, he meets a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, and that means we know this, that he would have been very successful in life, wealthy, you know, pillar of the community type thing. We also know he would have been a paragon of moral excellence and religious observance. He would have known the scripture. He would have been a completely uh, uh, observant of all the laws of God. But on top of this, Nicodemus, unlike the rest of his class, is open to Jesus. See, the rest of his class was very arrogant and proud about their uh, established credentials. And here's Jesus, this young uh, man who rises up without credentials, without background, and he starts to teach spiritual things. And they, and they, you know, they just, uh, almost all the rest of the class that Nicodemus was a member of had nothing to do with Jesus. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, uh, Rabbi, you know, respect, I'd like to learn from you. You know, let, let's talk about the kingdom of God. I want to learn from you. So here's about as good a man as you could ask for. Here's a man who, on top of his moral excellence and religious excellence and, and, and success in life, is a humble man and is open to Jesus. What more could you want? So he starts to say, Jesus, let's talk about, uh, you know, the kingdom of God. I'd like to learn from you. And Jesus immediately says, bang, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says, he doesn't say to Nicodemus, look, you're about as good as the, we, we have, and you need to be sort of topped off. You know, we, you need to be supplemented. I mean, you've made a great start, and I can help you. 
I can help complete you. Oh, no. You must be born again means you've got to start over. You have to be completely converted. Nothing you've done counts at all. You've got to start out as a spiritual baby. You must be born again. And what does that mean? If Nicodemus has to be born again, everybody's got to be born again. And when Jesus says you must be born again, or when Peter says you, we need the new birth, that is not a call to morality and religiosity. It's a challenge to morality and religion. Because if, if it's saying to a guy like Nicodemus, that's not enough, that doesn't help at all. You must be born again. So that's the necessity. It doesn't matter your personality, it doesn't matter your type, it doesn't matter what party you vote for, it doesn't matter what stripe of person, ethnicity, or temperament, you must be born again. You want to be a Christian, you want to have a relationship with Christ, that's the message of the New Testament. Number one, necessity. Number two, what's the source of this new birth? Well, it says, in his great mercy, well, of course, you could say that's a source, but that's not what the point. The point here is, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Now, this whole series is about hope, and therefore we're not going to drill down too much into what hope is because we're getting something about it almost every week. But what's important to recognize is we're told here that it's the hope, the living hope that God gives us that has such an amazing effect on us that we call it the new birth. Uh, here's, here's, another, here's a little uh, way to take another week to understand the importance of hope. Hope means this. Human beings are absolutely shaped by their understanding of the future. What you believe the future to be completely shapes how you're living now. And one of the examples of this is a book that was written actually over 10 years ago now and never got a lot of attention, but it's a terrific book by Andrew Delbanco, who's a uh, very prominent professor here at Columbia University. And some years ago, he wrote a little history of American culture. And that's a pretty... um, you know, ambitious thing to do, and it's a great book, and it's called A Meditation on Hope. Because what he says, he says, is the heart of any cohesive culture, the thing that makes a culture different from some other culture, is its hope at the heart of it. And he says these things in the introduction. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Is your life absolutely meaningless? If not, then it's because you have a hope. Otherwise, it's meaningless. So what is that hope? And then he goes on. He says, philosopher Michael Oakeshott concludes, quote, hope depends on finding some end to be pursued more extensive than merely instant desire. In other words, you must have something more important than yourself and your own selfish desires to live for, to sacrifice for, or you have no hope. And then he goes on and says, the premise of this book is that human beings need to organize their lives into a story that gives us hope. Without some structure by which hope is expressed, uh, we would be, as the anthropologist Clifford Geertz has put it, a kind of formless monster with neither sense of direction, power of self-control, and a chaos of vague emotions. Clifford Geertz is a pretty interesting guy. He's a very prominent anthropologist. He says, if you have no hope, if you don't have anything bigger than your own selfish desires and needs that you're living for, something you're sacrificing for, something bigger than yourself, you don't have any hope, he says, you have neither a sense of direction nor the power of self-control, and you are a chaos of vague emotions, which means you don't have any kind of strong emotions at all. You don't really love anything. You don't really hate anything. You're not really sad about anything. Now, just to prove Clifford Geertz completely... um, Right, 
I was reading a review of a, mu a new musical that's actually playing in Berkeley. It was in the New York Times yesterday. It's called American Idiot. And it's playing in Berkeley. It's based on the music of a, of a trio, uh, Green Day. And this is what the review says. It's the depiction of a new American generation, bored, disaffected, cynical about their own cynicism. It says one, there's, the line of one song or the chorus of one song is, I don't care if you don't care. That catchy chorus typifies the default attitude of life in 21st century America, raised in front of glowing screens, uh, experience mediated by technology. They abdicate responsibility even for their own affectlessness and expect everyone else to feel the same. They mistrust words. They don't use them with any particular grace or conviction. And it's the story arc, those evidently, the reviewer says, great music. The story arc is a bunch of people who basically have nothing to live for other than their immediate desire. So they basically waste years and years and years and years of their lives, singing great music as they do it. Uh, he, says, he says, because they actually have no hope, because they have nothing to live for more than their desires, uh, at one point he says, the only, the only relationship that really works is the relationship between the main character and his beat-up guitar. And then you, I keep thinking, you know, I'm reading the review, saying, well, how do you have a story arc? How does the story end? And the reviewer says, mournful as it is about the prospects of 21st century Americans, at the end, when the main character returns home with nothing to show for the years of anxious searching at all, I was still moved. Um, to ring a variation on a Woody Allen joke, the only thing sadder than wasting your youth is not to waste it. Nice try. You've got to end a review somehow. It's a good try. It was a nice try. <laughs> but see, the point is, if you're actually in a wasted life, if you are in a wasted, hopeless life and not up on a stage singing about it and getting applause, if you're actually in a wasted, hopeless life, it's hell. If you actually have no hope, there's nothing moving about it. You can't be moved. Clifford Geertz is right. What, what, what could move you? You have to have something more important than yourself to be moved. Now, if, if hope is that crucial to a cohesive culture, to a cohesive life, then you can imagine that when you get a new hope, it's life transforming. And that's the reason why it says, into a living hope. What is the living hope? Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power till the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed on the last day. When a person actually comes to realize that is true, that's real, when you get that hope, it's the new birth. Why? It just it changes your life completely because what, how you live now is completely affected by what you believe the future is. And if you believe that's the future, it changes everything. So uh, the uh, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says this beautifully about what it meant to become a Christian in the early days and what it means now. He says, Christians associated the beginning of their experience of God with an overwhelming new experience. Christian faith isn't just a conviction. It's not just a feeling and a decision. It invades the life so deeply that we have to talk about dying and being born again when a song or poem assures us that there is always a spring to follow winter. It sounds comforting, but in actual fact, the precise opposite is true because in this world, ultimately, transience triumphs over everything. But the experience of the Holy Spirit makes Christ's resurrection present and this wakens a living hope in God's future. And the moment of rebirth is the moment in which eternity touches time and puts an end to its transience. A truly new life begins only when this happens.
So there's the necessity of the new birth. There's the source of the new birth. Now, third, the nature. I mean, what is it? I mean, we've been talking about it. What is it? And my, there's a lot to say here, but I'd like to direct you to verse 8. And in verse 8 it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, literally, in the old King James Bible says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. You don't see him, but you love him. And you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Think about the metaphor of birth. Birth is the beginning of a new life and the unfolding of the nature you're born with. See, if you're born a bird, you're not going to develop into a human because to be born means that uh, you have a nature, it's called DNA, and the rest of your life is the unfolding of that DNA into becoming the being that you have the nature to be. And what this means when it says to become a Christian, you have to be born again, it doesn't just mean having a dramatic experience, and it certainly doesn't mean turning over a new leaf, a moral reformation. No, no, no. It can't just mean that. It means you have a new nature implanted in you. Something is being put into the very roots of your heart, which is going to change you from the inside out the rest of your life, organically. We'll say, what do you mean? Well, let's think about this idea of life. You know, what's the difference between a rock and a plant? Hmm? What's the difference between... There's a lot of differences, I know, and some of you out there have PhDs and all sorts of things, so don't take me, you know, be generous to me as I use my illustrations. Uh, but... Let's think about the fact that there are orders of life. A plant can sense its environment to some degree. It can sense heat and cold. It can sense light and darkness, right? But uh, an animal can sense more of its environment. It can sense an object coming at it, and it can escape a predator, right, in a way that a plant can't. So the plant can sense some of its environment. The animal has a, has a different nature, has a different, you know, um, nature and has the ability, therefore, to sense more of reality and therefore actually uh, act in the real world, uh, frankly, more effectively than a plant. Okay? But on the other hand, think about a human being. Human beings, of course, have this thing called reason, which means we can do deduction. We can actually see things that are happening. We can even know certain things are going to happen in a way that an animal can't. But not only that, human beings is another order of life because we perceive good and evil. And to prove that to you, we would never hold an animal uh, particularly responsible or for or, be, or being evil for the animal killing and eating weaker animals, right? We don't, we don't hold them responsible. But when we find a human being killing and eating weaker human beings, or when we see a, a group or a tribe or a nation just killing and destroying weaker nations, we hold them responsible. Why? Because we believe there is such a thing as injustice, we don't expect animals to be able to see it, but we expect human beings to be able to see it. Every order of life can perceive more of reality and act effectively in that reality. So it is with a new birth. Because when a pig, and you can read about this in Matthew 7, when a pig, you show a pig a pearl, a diamond, or a murder, and it just goes on munching its corn. Because it can't sense 
the full reality of what it's looking at. Right? We can, but it can't sense the full reality of what it's looking at. And without the new birth, you can look at the words God, holiness of God, grace of God, love of God, Jesus dying on the cross, and you can believe those. Oh, yeah, I believe them. I believe in God. Or you might not believe in them, but they're just abstractions. You can't sense the full reality of them. They don't change the life. They're not really real to your heart. They're not electrifying. They're not galvanizing. They're not life-changing. See, that's what... They, they don't change your life. You don't act on them, basis of them. You see? I mean, here's a person that says, I believe God. I believe God's in control of everything. And I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm anxious. You know, I'm frightened. I'm frightened by what's going to happen to me financially. Here's a person that says, because I believe God is in complete control, even though I feel like I'm about to go off a cliff financially, I'm really okay. I'm really okay. I really have a peace. What's the difference? They're looking at the same thing, and one senses the reality of it and one does not. One is just chewing its corn. The new birth means you now are able to sense the reality of things that before were nothing. You actually don't see the reality. And the new birth is a new order of life in which you actually finally begin to sense the full reality of what's out there in the universe and act in accordance with it. Um, it's really... Uh, it is an incredibly powerful thing to, uh, to move like that. It's, this is such a simple example of it, because maybe you're still thinking of emotion. But uh, uh, Frank Barker, who's a uh, retired pastor, is a friend of mine. I just love a story he once told me. I'm pretty sure he's told other people too. And that is that uh, you know, he actually studied theology and religion, and uh, including he actually at one point took a course in which he was studying the work, writings of Martin Luther and, uh, but later on, he came to faith in Christ when he began to understand the gospel. The gospel is, I'm not just saved by being a good person. I'm saved by grace. Jesus died for me. It, life is, he changed his life. And at one point, he was talking to the chaplain because he was, uh, I think, in the Air Force or in the Army. Anyway, he was a pilot. And uh, he was talking to the chaplain who had helped navigate him to faith. And he said, you know, one of the things I don't understand is I don't know why nobody ever really told me this gospel before. And what I don't understand is why Martin Luther didn't understand the gospel. And the chaplain said, what do you mean? He says, well, I studied his works, and I, that, but, you know, I, you know he didn't, I never saw the gospel in there. And the chaplain says, well, now that you've been born again, maybe you need to go back and reread some of those books. And he said, I went back to Luther's commentary on the Galatians, the preface in the commentary on Galatians. He says, on every page, I had it underlined. I had it highlighted. <laughs> you know, you know there, on every page was the gospel, and I hadn't seen it. It made no difference to me. I didn't even get it. The penny didn't drop. I didn't make a bit of difference. And now it means everything. It's brought my whole life together. It's changed everything. Everybody says, what happened? I was born again. I was born again. So there's the necessity. There's the source. There's the nature. I should say at least something briefly about the fact that new birth leads to growth. In fact, that's one of the ways you know you're born again is their growth. Because after all, baby is not born and then, hey, we've arrived. No. Uh, and those of you who have had babies born, we, we, we parents can't wait until they grow. Uh, we, we feel like it's taking forever for them to grow. Uh, and, of course, that just comes naturally. But take a look at verses 6, 7, and 8 to get an idea about how that works. Verse 6, 7, 8 says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In your hope. In the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
kept in heaven for you. So verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In brief, look at what he's saying here. Um, there's a deliberate paradox in the tense of the verbs that I'm afraid this translation kind of um, uh, obscures. It says, you are right now rejoicing in your hope. But it also says, you are right now suffering horrible suffering, grief, and, and um, agony. Present tense. He doesn't say, you've been rejoicing, um, but now you're in agony. Nor does he say, you're in agony, but soon you'll be rejoicing. He says, you're incredibly filled with joy and you're incredibly filled with pain at the same time. Well, now, how can that be? Here's how it can be. If you put your deepest hope, that's what it says, in, him you, in, these, in this you greatly rejoice. If your deepest hope is in circumstances of life, then when the circumstances of life go poorly, if it goes well, you're happy. If the circumstances of life go poorly, you're sad. It's one or the other. But if your deepest hopes are rooted in him, if that's your ultimate treasure, if that's your ultimate affirmation, if that's your ultimate love, if that's your ultimate value, if that's, where you, if that's it, then when the circumstances here, your bank account, your reputation, when the circumstances go down here, all that does is drive you more into your great hope. In the same way, fire with gold purifies it. It doesn't eliminate it. It purifies it. And so, see, if your hope is based in circumstances, when you go through sorrow, it will decimate you. You'll be destroyed. You'll be incinerated. But if your hope is put in something besides circumstances, then when you go through sorrow, and it is sorrow, it's real pain, It'll be turning you into gold. Um, okay, I do this with fear and trembling, but uh, many, many years ago, when before I married my wife, Kathy, when we were in a relationship, and I was wobbling, and I was not sure I wanted to keep the relationship going, and this put her through terrific agony. And one summer, we were working you know, in different places, and I went to visit her, and we can remember, well, I can remember. In fact, I asked her last night to make sure... My memory was right about this. We walked down a we were walking down a road and she suddenly said, You know, I've really been helped recently by a verse I found in the Psalms. You know what that verse was? Her translation, there's several translations of it. Basically the Psalm, uh, the verse that, that really helped her, she said is, Oh, it's a, it's a verse that says, Men are all a vain hope. And she says, It's really, really comforted me. So first I thought she was joking, and she showed me, no, she wasn't. And then I started to get very insulted, and then she said, no, I don't think you should. She says, I'm just finding that I'm so angry and I'm so anxious because I've been putting too much hope in men. And, you know, all this has been going on has helped me really realize who my real treasure is, what my real treasure is. It's really helped me. I feel so much better. And I could see it. But then I said, so you want to break up? Oh, no. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, I'm more ready than ever. We'll see. Now, she was living, verses 6, 7, and 8. I 
was the grief. And she was rejoicing more deeply even as she was suffering because the suffering, the suffering produced joy because that's what the gospel can do. That's what the new birth does. And, you know, the great irony of it is I, 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 may, I continue to be confused by what she was saying. I continue to be insulted by what she was saying, even though, and I could just barely understand it, even though it's one of the main things I've been telling you about for 20 years of preaching here. That's how you grow. See, Christians aren't stoic. I'm not going to let it get to me. Or sinkable. Christians are both sadder and happier. They grow sadder and happier at the same time. See, this, that's emotional maturity. That's spiritual maturity. The happier you are in your true hope, the more it enables you to be involved in suffering people's lives. You can feel the pain of the world. You can even feel your own pain better. But at the same time, your pain drives you more into the joy. Who would have thought this up? It must be true. The new birth. Okay, lastly. How does it happen? Well, down in verse 23, how does the new birth actually happen? What do you have to do? Um, here's the paradox. In verse 23, though it's not here, it says you're born again through believing the word, through the gospel. And here's the reason why this is so paradoxical. Do babies get born because they want to? Do babies say, I think I'll be born tomorrow? No. Babies participate in the birth, you know. They cry and they do all sorts of things. I've seen it happen three times. Uh, they definitely participate in the birth, and that's very important. But they're only born through the labor and through the suffering of someone else. If you want to experience a new birth, you have to understand your relationship to Jesus in such a way that you don't see him as a teacher. If you see him as a great teacher, and I'm trying my best to live a good life because I'm trying to do whatever Jesus wants me to do, I'm trying to, be, I'm trying to follow his example, that's not going to electrify you or galvanize you. I'm going to say, are you a Christian? And you're going to say, well, I'm trying, I'm trying, and I'm anxious about it. If you understand he's not your teacher who tells you what you have to do in order to save yourself, but your Savior who came to do everything you should have done so you can be saved by grace, so you can just receive it, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, then you begin to realize what your relationship to him really is. Because Jesus Christ actually says in John chapter 16, in an amazing spot, he says, in a little while you will see me no more. He says to his disciples just before he's about to die. Then he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, this is not only hard for us men to understand, but even you women in an age of epidurals and modern medicine are going to have a little trouble understanding. But in ancient times, no baby ever was born in the world except at the risk of the life of the mother. It was horribly, horribly painful. And every time a woman gave birth, her life was in the balance. And when Jesus says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come, and in the book of John where this is written, that word always means the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is identifying in that metaphor with a woman in labor. And he's, she's, he's saying this. Women give birth at the risk of their life through their pain and suffering. But I gave you birth at the cost of my life. It's not through your efforts that any, that any child is born. It's through the efforts of the mother. Okay? 
It's not through your efforts that you're saved. It's through my labor. It's through my work. I brought you from the darkness into the light. I gave you new life because I died. And when you see that, and you see, therefore, salvation is by sheer grace, and you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done, that's the beginning of the new birth. What's the beginning of the new birth? To see that it's a birth. To see that you're a baby. To see that he's the one who's brought you in. And when that moves you to the depths, all this can be yours. And you have to keep looking at it. You notice what's, what, what, as some of you know, my favorite line. It talks at the very end, verses 10, 11, 12, about the gospel. And then it says, even angels long to look into these things. Angels are pretty smart people, I'm pretty sure. I don't mean, they almost have to be. I mean, they're infinitely old, aren't they? And yet angels never get bored looking at the gospel. That's what it's saying. Angels are always eager to reflect on, in new ways, what God has done for us through Jesus. And if angels are always finding new beauties and always finding new wonders, that's the secret of your own growth. You need to do what Kathy did. You need, to, you need to look at what he's done for you until it fills you with such joy that you can take things because we've been born again into a living hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we have so much hope for our lives. We have so much hope for our, uh, for our hearts. We have so much hope for what you can do in our lives when we see what the new birth is. I pray that everybody here will either, hearing me, grow into that new life that they've been born into or lift their empty hands and say, Lord, because of what you have done, receive me and plant your life in me. Bring me into your family. Bring me into your kingdom. Thank you that there's such hope because Jesus Christ lost everything on the cross so we could have everything in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.